This is the Christian Humanist Podcast, where the questions get serious treatment, the hosts get put in their places, and the really good books get to have their say in the matter. Your hosts are Nathan Gilmore, Michael Farmer, and David Grubbs. Thanks for downloading another episode of the Christian Humanist Podcast. This is episode number 59, and I want to introduce and welcome my fellow hosts. Uh, first of all, coming at you from Minnesota, Assistant Professor of English at Crown College, Mr. Michael Farmer. How are you doing this morning, Michael? I'm doing pretty well. How about you? I'm doing pretty well. And from Kansas, Toto outside the door. Uh, Mr. David Grubbs, professor of English at Central Christian College of Kansas. Uh, David, how are you this morning? Uh, pretty decent. A little right. groggy, but you know, <laughs> otherwise fine. And of course, listeners, we always say morning because that's when we record. You, of course, are free to listen to it any old time of the no, day. No, you're not. You have to listen in the morning or else you're completely losing the effect. All right. Fair <laughs> enough. They might have more empathy. If they were listening early in the morning, I anyway. figure I figure people listen before a night in in the boudoir, David, because this early in the morning your voice sounds like Barry White. <laughs> Can you say uh, "Can't oh, get enough baby. of your love"? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, at any rate, on the blog, unfortunately, it's been a little bit quiet lately. I have to apologize, listeners. I've missed the last two lectionary posts. Now uh, I will try to pick it up this week again, but I've been cranking away on that book chapter so i you know i've just been neglecting my online writing so you 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 did post that ridiculous thing asking whether nevermind was better than blood sugar sex magic (laughs) well yeah and i i I forgot how pious people get about their pop music i i intended that to be a a light-hearted thing but some serious fur started flying well people took offense when i said that nevermind is among the most overrated albums of all time which it is well, yeah, and I mean, frankly, I think that, you know, most pop music is overrated, but I, you know, I, I threw that up That's there. That's why it's pop see. music. Well, yeah, and, and I just threw that up there to see, you know, uh, what people thought. You know, I thought it was a fun little fact that the two albums were released on the same day 20 years ago. Not one person uh, stood up for the Red Hot Chili Peppers, that's for sure. Yeah, I, I saw that. I saw that. Um, uh, sometime John, this, sometime this week... Uh, the week this goes up anyway, Chris Geertz and I are going to have reviews of the new Jayhawks record and the new Wilco record, which will be kind of dialogic. It'll be a conversation yeah. review. So that'll be up sometime this week, although probably not by the time you're hearing this, if you listen the day it comes out. Right, right. Cool. Uh, in other listener feedback, uh, we've still got some comments going on the blog, even though the actual production of material is getting a little bit slow. One more thing I'd like to talk about before we get into today's topic. Uh, on Deacon Bo's blog, you might know him from the Homebrew Christianity podcast, uh, he expressed some shock uh, that David Grubbs in our last episode, Christian Right and Christian Left, had never heard of Walter Rauschenbusch. And I just want to say that to our listeners, 
one of the reasons that we do this show is because we believe in what we tell our students, namely that an educated person should be a self-teaching person throughout the course of a, a person's lifetime. Uh, so, I mean, a lot of times there are things that as a rhetorician and as a, an English medieval, well, English Renaissance and medieval literature person, uh, I wouldn't have any formal contact with, you know, for instance, when Michael asked me about the rise of Jimmy Carter and Ronald Reagan and such, I had to research that (laughs) David had to research Walter Rauschenbusch, uh, all the time on this show, we ask each other questions that send us to the library and, uh, you know, I realized that Bo Sanders didn't have any personal vendetta out against us. He's been very gracious responding to my comments back to him. But I do just want to say that, you know, this is one of the things that makes recording this show with these two guys a lot of fun for me is that they do send me to the library. Uh, and I am familiar with things after two and a half years of this podcast that I simply wouldn't be familiar with had we not been recording it. So little public service announcement, a little bit of what makes our show fun to make. I hope it's also fun to listen for you listeners. Uh, Nathan, and today, Nathan, yeah, go. Would, would you say that Bo, we don't know Diddley? <laughs> <laughs> we, we, we might indeed say that, although I'm sure. We might. I, I, I'm sure at some point Trip Fuller's made that joke and I've missed it, but indeed, Bo seems to think that we don't know Diddley. Um, well, I certainly didn't know Rauschenbusch. Yeah, yeah. Uh, but if, as if I you said, don't get that joke, you're younger than I am. Yeah. <laughs> but as I said on his blog, I said, you know, if we did a Poets of the 14th Century episode and David went off on a long speech about John Gower, uh, probably even Bo Sanders wouldn't know who John Gower is. So <laughs> I'm pronouncing that right, David. Am I not? Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, okay, okay. Your, 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 your silence made me panic for a moment. Yeah, see, unlike unlike Rauschenbusch, I'd actually heard Gower's name pronounced. Fair enough, before. fair enough. <laughs> <laughs> well, at any rate, without further ado, uh, let's talk about God's, Godwin's Law, shall we? Mike Godwin um, is a person who is writing actually on meme theory. Uh, if you're familiar with Richard Dawkins or if you play around a lot on the internet, you know what memes are. And in 1994, he wrote a, an article for Wired Magazine talking about a meme that he had started to discern floating around Usenet circles back in the late 80s and early 90s, namely that just about any discussion of any topic would eventually result in somebody bringing up Hitler and comparing the other side to Hitler and the Nazis. And so in that article in 1994, Uh, to which uh, Michael will link in the show notes. I'm just sure of it. Uh, He wrote the following. As an online discussion grows longer, the probability of a comparison involving Nazis or Hitler approaches one. (laughs) Now, I want to start out with Godwin's Law to have a conversation, guys, not about meme theory, which is interesting in its own right and might be a future episode, uh, but to talk about the way that we have conversation on the Internet. So, David, I've just recited Godwin's own formulation of Godwin's Law, which even in 1994 had spawned spinoffs. Uh, I'm going to go out on a limb here and assume, and assume that all three of us could imagine a Before valid... Before get too far, yeah. you direct this question to Farmer in the notes. Oh, I'm sorry. I did direct this to the wrong person. My you bad. Sure did. You're worse than Hitler. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Hitler was constantly asking people the wrong questions. <laughs> 
So, Michael, since we could imagine a, a valid and even an appropriate comparison between contemporary events and historical phenomena we call National Socialism, uh, what makes Godwin's Law such a humorous little observation? Well, I mean, the, the issue is overuse, right? Godwin himself admits that there's occasionally a connection between what someone's arguing and the position of the Nazi party, and he mentions in particular uh, gun control, I believe, because... I suppose Hitler increased gun control, so he says it is valid to, to, to bring up Hitler in a discussion like that. But the problem is that the comparison gets made a million times more often than it's an, than it's an apt comparison. And then the problem is that you end up trivializing the Holocaust by comparing the suffering of its victims to people having to wait an extra 15 minutes to go into the dining hall or whatever whatever stupid thing you're arguing about. Or having their Facebook <laughs> interface changed. Oh, good lord. <laughs> so, Godwin um, Godwin ends up phrasing this in language that's very mathematical and precise, and, and that language shows how ridiculous those conversations sometimes get. It's a great little deflation of internet pretense, and since everyone on the internet imagines himself to be a deflator rather than an inflator, of internet pretense, it's become a very popular meme, even as people continue <laughs> comparing things to Hitler. So then you have people like me who are aware of Godwin's law, but aren't really smart enough to come up with better comparisons. So I always say Stalin instead of Hitler. Oh, sure, uh, sure. I've, I've made that move myself. So I, <laughs> it's, it's funny. kind of a never, sad little move, isn't it? it? It really is. I mean, or even I'll go as far as to say, you know, Pinochet or someone really obscure so that I don't get, you know, <laughs> Accused of Godwin's law, Genghis Khan. Yeah, <laughs> I, I, I've said Pol Pot. Oh wow! <laughs> <laughs> so, in other words, all of us have become anxious about Godwin's law, uh, even as we avoid citing it. So, now, David, I mean, our, our little shtick on this show, our little road show, uh, to use <laughs> Merrill Westfall's term. Uh, and by the way, his recent interview on homebrewed Christianity was just dynamite, two-part interview. Go listen to it. Um, you know, you're the continuity guy. I'm the contingency nut. So let's go ahead and you know bring this into our little arena. Uh, hey, what is, am is, I in this in this little in this scenario, Nathan? Uh, an American, the an Americanist. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I like yours better, David. <laughs> You guys, you guys are defined by your philosophical positions, and I'm I'm defined by uh... a continent. Yeah, <laughs> not even a continent. A third of a continent. It yeah, contains well. multitudes. <laughs> well, at any rate, David, I mean, is there something inherent in the structure and the equipment of Usenet, and eventually the World Wide Web, and eventually mobile internet use uh, that lends itself to the Hitler leap? Or is there something inherent in human nature that tends towards hyperbole irrespective of platform? Or is there something entirely different, you know, perhaps something that resembles Hitler, uh, that makes people want to compare everything to Hitler? I'm going to have to pull a, a, a you here, Nathan, and say um, <laughs> I, I, I don't think any one of those things is going, to be the, is going to be the whole answer. So I'll just start off with humans generally. Mm -hmm. And then kind of get more specific. Um, I think humans instinctively make the microcosm, macrocosm move. Ah. That, uh, that they, they can instinctively turn the setting that they're in 
and the situation that they're in into a representation of the world so that a local event gains cosmic significance in in some kind of imagined or even instinctive sense. And nothing sharpens the world into a point like an argument, mm-hmm. right? Um, of course, we're also instinctive dualists, which means that arguments are going to escalate to the point where it gets apocalyptic. I would and the say opposing some people are and some people aren't. Hmm? Nothing, nothing. Dumb joke. (laughs) Anyway, anyway, we we start getting apocalyptic and the opposing sides start deploying their God and devil terms. Mm -hmm. Right. Because, you know, this this argument has suddenly turned into, um, oh, I don't know, uh, Ragnarok. And now the two sides are finally going to have it out. Um, And if you need uh, any explanation, uh, listeners for God and devil terms, please review our Richard Reaver triptych, which, well, anyway, was an awesome set of episodes. So you should go listen to them. <laughs> anyway, that, and, and, and that I think is, is generally true. Um, and looking, you know, just in the in famous historical arguments, we see that coming up for we see that coming up frequently. We've I mean, I, I think we've said before, we've discussed before how arguments within a particular ideological uh, group mm-hmm. sometimes gain such a huge significance in that group that group that isn't apparent to people who are outside of it. And to me, the most hilarious hilarious illustration of that particular thing is to look at um well, 19th century Anglicans uh, calling each other papists over, right. you right. know, di- you know, different choices about how to run a church service. You know, um, when you look at them, no one's a Catholic in that conversation. But mm-hmm. every move, you know, the altar needs to be higher. We need candlesticks. You know, er- everything becomes this this. Uh, occasion in which to deploy uh, um, what what I guess would be sort of the 19th century Anglican Godwin's law invoker. Um, <laughs> you're the papist. On, on the other hand, they all look like papists compared to, say, the chapel services at the schools the three of us work at. Yes, but to be fair, the chapel services at the schools we look at look like nothing in Christian history before the Jesus movement. I thought that's when Christian history began. <laughs> You're Hitler. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, you know that that that's that I think is human nature, and and every I think every generation has its own has its own Hitler kind of equivalent. The difference, though, is I think in in our cases, it's sh- it in in our kind of generation, it shows the. I guess kind of the prevalence of of nation state and the political kind of ideology that 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 Hitler is the one who gets to be the ultimate evil and not say the pope or the anti-pope mm-hmm. or you know something like that that's that that does seem to be a shift there um but what does the internet do um the internet takes the faces off of ever off of everyone in the conversation um in in a way that books do also if 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 books are having conversations i don't know if erasmus and luther ever got in a room and fought it out 
Ooh, which, I don't know that historically, but I, I, I share your instinct, David. Yeah, I, I, I doubt that that ever happened in, in real time, live, face to face. If it did happen, um, regardless of what one thinks of Erasmus, Erasmus's arguments, I kind of think Luther probably would have won because he seems to be a, a I don't know. Just, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, I know, I know where my, my, my money would be on that fight. And they, you know, they engage in some nastiness, uh, though, though Erasmus's is frankly um, uh, sort of really a really smart guy being uh, elusively snarky. And if you get it, you're like, ooh, that burn. You're, yeah, you're burnt, yeah. Luther. It, it's Hugh Grant Luther versus Rush Limbaugh. Like, you're a girly man. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so... Uh, but and, and and that was a you know that they never met face to face and so that there was a kind of facelessness of that book exchange, but that didn't happen in real time, right? right? In the way that an internet conversation can. Um, it's just something about taking the face off of the other the other person that you're communicating them to that makes the that makes the whole microcosm macrocosm thing so much easier. Yeah. Um, anyway. Uh, I was uh, reading a, a study. Oh, Science Daily, maybe, or uh, Psychology Today magazine, something like that, in which uh, people, uh, a person alone in an empty room, had to make a decision that would affect the other test subjects, uh, basically dispensing rewards allocating them and there were no rules about the allocation of the rewards they could be as selfish or as altruistic as they wanted and there were no repercussions that they would ever see within the terms of the test but if you put an image of a human face on the wall looking at them or seeming to look in the space that they were standing in the people who had the face on the wall looking at them tended to divide things more evenly than the people who did not. Hmm. Um, there's, there's some way that even just an imagined face. Um, well, it's like a, like that scene in 1984. Yes. Or mm -hmm. uh, Foucault's Panopticon, right? If people mm -hmm. think they're being watched in general, they're going to behave. Right. Well, and, and that was uh, one of the arguments in the article is is this a is this the you're being watched, or is this reminding you that there are other human beings? <laughs> anyway, right. Which philosophically, those two things are pretty closely linked. I was going to yeah. say, I'm not sure there's a hard and fast line between them. Right, right. Although certainly there are differences of emphasis. I would grant. Um, right. Michael, is there anything you'd add to that? No. All right. Fair enough. <laughs> Well, let, well, let's let's turn from you know the worst Apist. of internet behavior, Hitler, <laughs> as, as we as we indulge in it, uh, to some of the best. You know, Michael, probably the best treatment I've heard on good habits on the internet uh, is the talk that John Mark Reynolds gave at the 2008 God Blog Con, entitled "The Art of Online Conversation." As briefly as you can, uh, sum up that latter half of that lecture where Reynolds breaks down blogging ethics in terms of the four classical virtues. Uh, and, you know, give us a couple comments on what you found helpful or what you didn't find helpful in his talk. Well, I remember listening to this piece back when it first hit the Internet, and uh, I remember I had to go pick up a car from 
Birmingham, Alabama, so I listened to it on the way back. And I remember I was new to the uh, World of Christian podcast at that time. I remember thinking that Reynolds was a very wise man indeed. Um, which, you know, that that opinion of him goes up and down, but <laughs> listening listening to that uh listening to that lecture again i'm inclined to agree with my 2008 self he is plugging a book of his in that lecture called new media frontiers i have not read that book i know nathan has so yeah. once i once i give the analysis of the lecture you can talk about how it fits into the book if you'd like mm-hmm. um he says that writing is dangerous and that blogs are especially dangerous because anyone can read what is written on them so uh Add to that the fact that the conversations never disappear, and you have to assume that your boss or mother or wife are reading or listening to whatever you say. So, hi, Mom. Hi, uh, Victoria. Hi, various Crown administration. <laughs> um, he he conducts all this through an analysis of Plato's Phaedrus. He says, as, as Grubbs just pointed out, he says that... Uh, Internet conversations combine aspects of live conversation, dialogism, with uh, with writing, and, and again, it's the permanence of writing that's in question. So you have immediate interaction and eternal preservation, which is either a very good conversation or a very good combination, or a very bad combination, indeed. But it's certainly a dangerous one either way. Right. So he gives some tips. He says that you should always reveal something about yourself beyond your blog subject, just to remind people that they're dealing with a human being. And he calls that incarnational blogging. He says that he also usually comments in places where he blogs. So that, again, people remember he's a person. And he says to remember that your commenters, no matter what they say about you, are also people. Because that's easy to get uh, lost in. And then his third tip, Mm. as, as Nathan suggested, comes in connecting the subject of blogging with the four classical virtues. So he wants to know, is what you're saying courageous? Is it practically wise? Is it moderate? And is it just? So in terms of courage, you, you shouldn't just say things that you know everyone is going to agree with. In his example, because he's talking in 2008, the Washington Post wanted him to write something criticizing greed, and he wouldn't do it because in 2008, everybody was criticizing greed. Uh, the time to criticize greed would have been when the market was way up, not when it had fallen because of greed. So there would have been no courage in making that statement. Um, so you're supposed to stand against the crowd in some way. In terms of being practically wise, you're supposed to talk about things that matter to people. Um, you know, I'm not a big fan of that word practical, but uh, he, here I think what he's talking about is just some, something that can help somebody somehow. Not necessarily help get a job. <laughs> um, in terms of being moderate, he says you should temper your strong opinions. You don't want to overstate things in a ridiculous manner because it makes you look foolish. It actually harms your subject. This is that that's basic rhetoric 101, right? And then finally, what what you say should be just, which means you should treat equals equally. He says and treat unequals with mercy. And yeah, I um I found all of this quite helpful and quite reasonable. I think he points out ways that internet discourse is different than anything that's come before, and he also talks about where there's continuity with the past. And since internet discourse has a tendency to become immoderate and unjust very quickly, I think his connection to classical virtue is a very helpful one, and it's practically wise, as uh, as he might say. Right. I mean, I, probably my favorite part of that lecture is simply that someone had the idea to bring the wisdom of the ancient philosophers into a 21st century medium. Uh, And it's one of those things where, 
you know, it is counterintuitive at first because the material conditions are completely different, obviously. Uh, and yet it translates so well uh, as a project in calling into question the worst habits of the Internet that, you know, it's it's really just a, a really, really nice lecture. Uh, as Michael said, I mean, this is part of a series of talks he was giving leading up to the release of his book, The New Media Frontier, which he edited. It's actually written by a, a series of authors. Uh, but it's a really nice little book, largely breaking down the question of Christian activity on the Internet into several spheres of life where online activity can be helpful and it can be dangerous. So there's a chapter on uh, Internet discourse for academics, a chapter on Internet discourse for ministers, a chapter on Internet discourse for political activists, a chapter on Internet discourse for informed citizenry, so on and so, so forth. Really nice little book. I definitely would recommend that to our listeners. Uh, I mean, David, I, I don't know if you got a chance to listen to that little talk or not. Um, I, was, I didn't have time to get all the way through it. Okay. Um, but I, I, I agree with the general assessment. John Mark Reynolds is, is a wise guy, not in the snarky sense, but a wise person. <laughs> a wizard. <laughs> uh, um, what just but, happened? Uh, that 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 was my very bad early in the morning attempt to do three stooges noises. Oh, I'm more interested in Grub saying a wizard and then going. <laughs> no, that was in response to the three stooges noise. Yeah. Oh, oh I thought that... maybe a wizard had appeared in your office, David. <laughs> no, 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 no. That was just a glorious juxtaposition. No, that, that's sorry. That's just an edit. That, that's just an etymological joke. That's where wizard comes from. It's cognate yes. with our word for wise. Anyway, oh. You know, a, a, a wise, a sage, verily. Mm -hmm. um, and, I, and I've heard him speak about uh, the classical virtues in many other contexts. And so a lot of the, uh, it sounds like a, lo a lot of the ideas that, that came together in that particular talk, I've heard, I've heard in, in, in other contexts uh, of, of other lectures and writings of, of his that I've, that I've looked at. But, but yeah, I, I mean, it's, it's just a reminder, you know, again, you know, being being Mr. Continuity, <laughs> that uh, the good ideas don't have expiration dates on them like a milk jug. And just because we have this new interweb thing doesn't mean that we have to now rethink ethics from the ground up mm -hmm. in order to figure out how to use it responsibly. Anyway. Well, yeah. David, I, I want to hear some more from you. So we've heard some of the best and some of the worst that people do on the Internet. I, I want to dig into some gray areas with the time that we've got left. One of those gray areas uh, that we've discussed off air, David, is the act of psychologizing one's opponents instead of addressing the content of the argument at hand. And this is something that just bugs the snot out of me, as you know. Uh, I mean, give us an example of this sort of phenomenon and talk a little bit about what makes it so hard to think about ethically and the, the sort of muddying of the waters that you did for me when I was ranting about it. Mm -hmm. Um, well, what one th part, part of it is the, uh, it's not exactly psychologizing, but when you're, when you bring up the, the, the notion that the, that the other person might have some kind of motive behind what they say, that isn't mm -hmm. the rational reason they just put forward. Um, as in the case when you know opponents of the 
uh, or for instance, uh, opponents of the HPV vaccine will say, well, you just want to give children the HPV vaccine so they can have as much sex as they want. To be fair, though, that is what people want. They want eight-year-olds having tremendous amounts of sex. Yes, but that doesn't actually have weight when you're when you're countering the arguments that someone raises um unless the are you know you, you you know you know what i mean you can you can talk about motives and motives are definitely always there especially when we're having an argument about something ethical um but at the same time addressing motives and addressing arguments are are are, are different things it's mm-hmm. um to switch from one to the other is 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 to change the grounds of the argument. Um, sure. So it doesn't matter but, if Rick Perry wants eight year olds to to enter into sexual relationships or whether he got an enormous amount of money from the pharmaceutical companies. What matters is the effects of that shot on on society, right? I mean, that's what that's what opponents of that plan should be arguing. Um. Yes. The 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 basic point of. Which, you know, yeah, should the government require you to get a vaccine? Mm-hmm. Um, so anyway, um, the other the other move is one that I that uh, I, I would get from students frequently um, at UGA, which was the uh, people who oppose gay marriage are probably secretly gay themselves and suppressing it. Wow. <laughs> you, you taught different students from the ones I taught, David, but go ahead. <laughs> No, I I, 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 I I got that one well every semester until I start until I stopped um, uh, assigning the uh, discuss both sides of an ethical argument. Oh, and see, I always got the change the drinking age to sixteen paper. Oh, I got that one too, and I was the one I got. <laughs> yeah, I was definitely psychologizing those particular writers um, or, or legalized marijuana. Right. Well, the, the the problem with with psychologizing one's opponents that that is of 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 instead of answering what they say, but trying to get behind their thought and say that this is that is this is what leads you to think that in some kind of meta rational way. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, the 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 problem with that is that you are you are not yourself removed from that um, from that same reality that you're attributing the other person's uh thoughts to um and and this is the, you know it's the same kind of thing that we see often in in you know if you if you look at science news daily or something like that and and are looking at the social sciences and they'll have these studies where oh it turns out that some new particular ethical argument someone's come out uh, with a study that seems to suggest it has something to do with some psychological you know, reality or whatever, and you know the people on the on the side of the argument that the article doesn't tout as the crazy people um, <laughs> will say, "See, look, the other side is crazy." I knew it. Uh-huh. But does that not also mean that your opposition to that is probably equally due to the same kinds of meta rational realities that your opponents' arguments are, and therefore? You're all crazy people, and no one is having an argument. It's right. just crazy people being crazy at each other. Although for that move to have any rhetorical force, you have to take a stance as someone who is standing above the fray, observing other people's psyches. 
It's the, uh, right. the elephant and the blind man. Oh, yes. goodness. <laughs> Michael, you, Nathan's favorite you, intellectual metaphor. The papist elephant? You really do want to get me ranting, don't you? I, I, always. <laughs> I, I'm, always yes. happy to, I'm always happy to hear you yell on this program. <laughs> and, and, David, I, I think your summary of it is spot on. And it's one of those things that, you know, as I have, you know, tacked on rhetorician onto my list of quasi-specialties, uh, it's one of the questions that really troubles me and I've never gotten anyone to answer for me is on the one hand in your standard list of rhetorical fallacies, you've got the ad hominem, mm-hmm. you know, uh, you attack the person instead of establishing the rationality of the argument. But then in the rhetorical triangle, so-called, you've got the appeal to ethos, which is to say, if you can establish that you have superior credibility to the other side, it's a good argument. Uh, so, out of one, uh, it's, go ahead. Go it's ahead. A, the ethos is a necessary but not sufficient part of an argument, right? So it if, is. It if is. You but use, it's if a... you use the book, I think you and I both use for our for our comp classes, Scott Kreider's Office of Assertion. He uh-huh. treats that very much as the least of these in the rhetorical triangle. It's true, but my point is that it's good in one side and it's bad in the other side. Mm-hmm. Was it on this program where I think it was Grubbs talking about how there's such a thing as a a uh, genuine ad hominem argument. I mean, there, there's times when it's appropriate to attack the credibility of the other person. Oh, sure, sure. But like I said, it's, uh, you know... I'm, if I'm, he's I'm, Hitler, I'm, for example. Yeah. Right. <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not trying to say that it's invalid, uh, and I'm not trying to say that, you know, uh, I have an answer to this. What I'm talking about is a paradox within the way that we tend to, tr- to teach rhetoric. Right. Well, so, I mean, part, Michael might have this this tension resolved, and he's cut the Gordian knot. I still haven't yet. I, I mean, one of the things I tell my students is one way you establish authorial credibility is by not making ad hominem attacks. It, it's by demonstrating that you are fair to the people uh-huh. you're talking. I mean, that that's a large part of ethos. Is it's de- demonstrating that people can trust the arguments you're making because you because they understand that you're not making them on a personal level. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Go ahead, David. Well, uh, what I was going to say is that the 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 fallacy is is particularly a a um, a kind of logical fallacy. Um, if you're if you're if you're supposed to be addressing someone's reasons in a rational argument, the ad hominem attack is is well, it's it's changing the ground as I as I mentioned earlier. It's it's bringing up another issue as your answer for. Um, uh, the the argument you're trying to counter, um, whereas ethos, I mean, ethos is relevant because because the people that you're trying to persuade are not Vulcans. <laughs> All right. Um, you know, re- the art of rhetoric uh, was designed by and to be used upon human beings, who. That's what I've been doing wrong. Yes, that's precisely <laughs> the the mistake. Um, yeah, it's it's. It's it's the art of effective persuasion, and and effective persuasion is not always achieved by rational means. Sometimes one has to establish the right to even gain a hearing um, from an audience before one can even deploy one's arguments. Right, right. And the establishment of ethos is is one of those ways that you even get to it get to get behind a podium in the first place. Right. And of yeah. course, just to add one more layer to the paradox, one of the most effective ways to establish ethos 
is to point at one's opponent and say, he just made an ad hominem assertion. <laughs> <laughs> He's a bad arguer. Yeah. So I, <laughs> oh. Oh. but again, this is what makes rhetoric so fascinating. And, you know, this is what makes internet rhetoric uh, doubly fascinating because there's actually a, a fully developed shorthand for people who make these kinds of moves. You know, I mean, uh, when we talk about trolls or we talk about flame wars, uh, mm-hmm. you know, we are talking about this tension between ethos as a valid part of rhetorical practice and then the ad hominem as a sort of overreach and a missing of the point. So uh, fascinating stuff. I mean, I'd, I'll let you have the last word, David, since I just cut you off. Oh, I, I, I don't really have a last, war, uh, last oh, okay, word, okay. Other, other than to say that uh, I think it's uh, kind of wonderful that as soon as the internet started coining terms to describe these, uh, these sorts of uh, uh, dis, uh, dishonest and not terribly kind disputes on internet forums, it immediately takes the form of an epic fantasy war. Yes. Flame war trolls. <laughs> anyway, the medievalist in me loves it. Trolls <laughs> are such a cliche now for for, for the per- sort of person who stirs up trouble on the internet. But th- mm-hmm. that's such a wonderfully evocative analogy before it got kind of worn out. But most cliches were, I suppose. Well, right, I just kind right. of imagine them under bridges with laptops. Right. <laughs> Grunting furiously. Right, at the billy goats who are crossing the bridge also carrying laptops. Hammering the tiny, tiny keys with their fists that are mostly knuckles. (laughs) Oh, goodness. Oh, man. Well, anyway, Michael, uh, when Mike Godwin wrote his article for Wired, uh, the law was already four years old. He had had formulated it in 1990. uh, And yet... You know, widespread web browsing, much less blogging, much less Facebook, and heaven help us, much less mobile phone internet use. We're pretty far in the future. Um, I want to go around the horn, and I want to keep it fairly limited to sort of intellectual disputes, the sort of things we've been talking about now. So I don't necessarily want to hear about internet porn and all the various ways that people access it now. (laughs) But starting with Michael, let's go around the horn, uh, and each of us can name one or two of the big developments that have changed the character of digital communications and what changes each hath wrought. Michael, go to town. Yeah, um, I was going to talk first about message boards, which are kind of a democratized version of Usenet where Godwin's Law originated. So mm-hmm. you have a greater swath of, you know, in the early days of the internet, it was mostly the incredibly tech savvy, and thus you could assume on some level intelligent people using the internet, the message board kind of opens it up to literally everybody. <laughs> and so mm-hmm. I uh, I say this because message boards are where I kind of cut my teeth being a jerk on the internet. Unfortunately, the <laughs> two, the two, both of the two message boards where I was a jerk have, I think, largely disappeared, so you can't find where I was a jerk anymore. And uh, that that pleases me, and it I, I find that's what that, you hope anyway. Uh, that's what I hope anyway. <laughs> they, they they both went down about three months before I started applying for jobs too. So I take that as divine intervention. <laughs> I take that as a mob hit. <laughs> and the other thing I want to talk about is Facebook, which is interesting because it it you know for the most part puts a 
human face back on whatever sort of unpleasant interaction you're having. And I've gotten into my share of fights, most of them political, on on Facebook. And the nice thing is you are looking usually at a miniature version of the person's face, unless, of course, you're talking to me, in which case you're looking at a miniature version of a cartoon son. Right, or me, in which you're looking at Sean Connery dressed as a friar. But often you are looking <laughs> at a human face. And in any way, you have presumably some sort of relationship with them if not off the internet, at least in other context than that one forum. Now, that being said, I have unfriended people because of repeated revolting remarks they've made on my Facebook. But so I, I'm not I'm not at all saying it's perfect, but I'm saying if they step up in terms of internet civility from the, the old message board model, which is just the easiest place in the universe to be a jerk. Believe me, I know. <laughs> David? Nathan, Nathan oh, went, sorry, go ahead, Michael. Nathan went to one of those message boards, and I believe his exact word is that I was a gaping orifice. So I'll let, uh, <laughs> I'll let our listeners uh, decide what he meant wow. by that. And now my phrase is on record in, in perpetuity. <laughs> You're referring, of course, to a nostril, right? That's right, yes. <laughs> yes, a nostril. An ear hole. Yeah. <laughs> I was a raging and, ear hole on these um, and, <laughs> on these message boards. And listener, believe me, he was being one. <laughs> oh no, I didn't. I don't think I denied it when you said it, did I, Nathan? <laughs> no, you didn't. <laughs> I have learned internet civility slowly. You also have to remember, I was fourteen, fifteen when the internet kind of became something everybody did in the the late nineties, mm-hmm. mid mid late nineties. So like. I hadn't learned civility elsewhere first, the way I assume the two of you did. <laughs> ah. Well, the hilarious thing is, uh, well, brief message board anecdote, then talk what I really want to talk about. Mm-hmm. Um, I got onto message boards, I guess probably the, the around the same time that you did, Michael, because you know, well, my, my family was a little late in getting onto the whole interweb thing. Um, but it, we were getting, you know, our our ISP was AOL, and so I was on AOL message boards about Tolkien, of course. And so, <laughs> well, some things never change. I uh, the I still remember the the most epic. Was it a flame war? No, I think it was actually pretty civil. Um, was a discussion over whether or not Legolas in the Lord of the Rings has blonde hair. Or brunette hair. I saw the movie. He had blonde hair. Well, <laughs> interestingly enough, if you read the books, no one there's never actually a description of his hair color, and most people assume he's blonde. But there, there was a a strong and 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 uh, forceful contingent of brunette Legolas partisans. Um, and I I remember my super super long. Uh, footnoted, um, I, I think, very rationally argued post about why he he needs to, he should be blonde. And, well, David, I think I, I think and the, and the responses to that just the responses to that just just flabbergasted. I I couldn't understand. Of course, I was also more of a Vulcan than than, than I am now. Um, so I, I people think- just weren't accepting my argument. I think congratulations are in order, David, because you have clearly found the stupidest argument in history. <laughs> Hitler. 
<laughs> I, you, you, you know, the scholastics who met to determine how many angels would dance on a head of a pen would oh, look at the, look look at the <laughs> argument about Legolas's hair and say, "You guys really need to get a life." <laughs> Yeah. Well, again, whole, the microcosm, macrocosm thing, right? Um, within the community of that message board, that was a question worth arguing about. Right. Right. So um, the, the more you get into a community, the the smaller the questions that get blown up into enormous questions. Yeah. The bigger the landmarks will be. Um, it's 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 kind of like you know if living in a very small town in which. You have like the hill or the mountain, but you never go and find out that there are bigger mountains somewhere else. So, so you've been to Plainfield, Indiana. Well, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> no, no, I've never been to Plainfield, Indiana, but you, you, you know what I mean when I say that. Well, those internet communities end up turning into Plato's cave, right? Where you can't imagine anything but shadows or substance. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Uh, yeah, and that, that's. Another great way to deploy classical thinking in this particular context. There you go. No, I wanted to. I wanted to gripe about Facebook. Oh, um, see, I praised it. I, well, well, I, I'm going to counter that by saying, never in the history of the world, except at funerals and weddings, have all of the most important people that you, in your life from all of the contexts in which you know them, ever been in the same place. <laughs> Having to interact with one another. And it's like the most awkward party ever, and it never stops. <laughs> I, I find myself on Facebook being I, I restricted to saying nothing but either I, – I, I find myself having to say – I can only say things that everyone I know will agree with. <laughs> or at least putting it in the most deferential way because my my grandmother-in-law is my Facebook friend as well as high school and college and well actually all the colleges I've had any affiliation with former yeah. students uh professors um two thirds well no actually my entire dissertation committee um, your bosses at central added you on facebook yet no not as of yet i'm just i'm just waiting um but uh, that is that is one thing that that uh that facebook has done and and to me it it makes it very difficult uh if if anyone ever on my wall says something openly provocative um i, I i'm always like i can I, I don't feel like i can counter that because everyone is watching me listeners yeah. that's grubs with two b's <laughs> yes. So make sure make sure you add him on Facebook and then say provocative <laughs> slash offensive things on his. Wall. Yes, yes. Make my life more awkward on Facebook. <laughs> yes, please. Um, I I don't know exactly. I mean, I I think that's relevant to this somehow. Um, mm-hmm. I mean, certainly I I call very few people Hitler because you don't do that in front of your grandmother, in law. <laughs> unless your unless your uh, grandmother in law is a Nazi. Which she is not. She's from West Virginia. So, you know, not a Nazi. Um, 
ah, anyway, anyway, it's 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 changed the the character of the kinds of conversations that I'm able to have. It kind of forces you into moderation, though, to use those classical virtue terms. It may keep you away from courage, but it it, it forces you into moderation. No, that's true. That's true. But it means that um, that normal human activity of preparing a face to meet the faces that you meet you know um, you, you have to somehow prepare a face to meet every face that you meet simultaneously and I don't I'm not, I, I'm not always entirely crazy about that face because he's not terribly brave and he tends to waffle on things and whenever something controversial comes up he's either silent or he says something inanely witty. And the only president he ever votes for is King Alfred. So so you, you are J. Alfred Proofrock on Facebook. Yes, yes. Facebook has proofrocked me. <laughs> oh. Anyway. Um, well, I'd like to talk a minute uh, about the podcast <laughs> as an internet artifact. Uh, obviously, we're making one, so it's a little bit self-referential. Uh, but but uh, one of the glorious things I think about podcasting uh, is that something like this could exist. <laughs> you know, uh, if there were no podcasts, then there would probably be a show like this. You know, on Stanford Radio called Entitled Opinions, and that would be about <laughs> it. Uh, so I mean, you know, one of the things about podcasting is it takes all of the conventions of the genre of talk radio. Uh, and it democratizes them so that people of a like mind, although not identical minds, that's one of the things that I like about our show, uh, is that, well, at any rate, people with like minds can get together and produce the kind of show that used to require a demographic of thousands, and we <clears throat> can do it for a few hundred people. And, you know, <clears throat> the cost isn't so prohibitive that that makes it a suicidal venture. How much money have we spent total on this podcast? Oh, the- goodness, I don't know. I mean, I, I pay a few dollars a month to maintain the web space. Uh, I bought a headset on eBay for a few bucks. Beyond right. that, I think that's about the extent of my outlay. I think I spent I bought 60 mine new, so it was like 30 Yeah. <laughs> What did you say, Michael? I've bought, I've spent about sixty bucks total on headsets. I, mm-hmm. I guess I guess ninety because I had to buy Victoria one. Okay, okay. So, so I, I've spent more than anyone. There you go. <laughs> Clearly, well, you're the most. Well, invested. That, then again, I've been maintaining the web space for two years of this bad boy. That's true. Yeah, we, 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 we're <laughs> so, about the same. I, I I'm gonna claim my righteousness here. Uh, but I edit you the know, show, though, Nathan. <laughs> <laughs> Do you but know like how much I, said, I make an hour? So, well, dollars. <laughs> so, as I was saying, uh, you know, I think that this is definitely one of the places where one of the genres of the mass communication era, something that used to be limited to people who either had lots and lots of money independently or who could pitch an idea that would make lots and lots of money, has now drifted into the hands of nerdy college English teachers. Not that I know any of those. Uh, you know, who can put together a show like this and have a lot of fun doing it, perhaps benefit some listeners on the way. Uh, just to complete the Facebook hat trick, uh, since you two talked about Facebook, I figure I ought to as well. You know, one of the interesting things about intellectual discourse on Facebook is that Facebook is a place that encourages, I think, or maybe it's just the people that I have on my wall, that encourages manifestos. 
uh, and very uh. manifestos. In other words, it's not that people go on Facebook, generally speaking, and say, I have an interesting question that I'd like to pose to my friends. What do you think about this? That does happen on occasion. What happens far more often is my friends either, uh, to use last episode's terminology, from the Christian right or the Christian left, will go on and paste and post a hundred-word rant about whatever politician, preacher, public figure of some sort uh, that they most dislike at the moment. Uh, and then, because I am pathological, I find myself <laughs> unable to resist poking holes in their manifestos, which, of course, gets threats that I'm going to be unfriended, which hasn't happened yet that I know of. Uh, and, you know, often, you know, gets me labeled things like communist, fundamentalist, uh, so on and so forth. So, you know, I think that, you know, one of the things about Facebook is because people assume that I am talking to my friends because Facebook tells us that we have 724 friends, uh, that I can basically throw my manifestos out there with impunity. And, you know, I, I, I think that that is definitely an interesting development in public discourse. Uh, you know, I think it has good points and it's bad points, but it's certainly interesting. So, David, I'm going to toss you the wrap-up question because, unfortunately, I've got a meeting I've got to make today. Uh, one of the things that Paul says in Colossians is that we should make the most of our moment, our kairos, our time, uh, speaking with grace to those outside. Uh, give us just a little tidbit and then hand it off to Michael on how that bit of counsel from the first century might inform our digital lives in the 21st. Sure. The full text um, is Colossians 4, and I'm just going to cite uh, five and uh, chapter 4, verse 5 and 6. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Um, on one level, we can say Paul is saying, always be on your best behavior because you never know who's watching. <laughs> um, and that sounds kind of like things that my mother said, but you know what? They're still true. Yeah. That, true. you know, that, that's, that's another bit of advice that doesn't have an expiration date on it. Um, nor do you grow out of it. In fact, it only becomes more important. And, um, uh, though, though I, I complain about proof rocking in some way, Maybe that's a healthy anxiety because I am um, I am always being observed, and part of that observation is is uh, taking place on the part of people who who Paul calls the outsiders, the people who are on the outside. Uh, he he's referring um, to people who are not within the Christian community, who are not within uh, the Christian faith, who don't own Christ as God and King, and so. We have a responsibility to those who are outside as much as we do to those who are inside. Um, we talk a lot about how we need to love our brothers and so forth and so on. And yes, civil discourse within the Christian community is important because of that kind of brotherly love. But it's just as important because we're always being watched. Right. Um, and if we want people to come to the inside, the inside has got to look like a place they want to be. Mm -hmm. And if our conversations are just as Godwin's law violating as, you know, those about what color Legolas's hair are or, or whatever, <laughs> um, 
I don't think that's going to be a very um, well. It'll be a salty conversation, but not salty in the way Paul wants it to be. Uh, salty in the in the idea that uh, that that it's that it's appetizing, that it looks uh, it looks attractive, and people want to come back for more. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, that's 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 uh, my little mini sermon on that text. Very good, Michael. What would you add to it? I would add that the inside-outside distinction, if not completely obliterated, is has mostly fallen down on the internet because there are very few internet forums that are not accessible to everyone. Facebook right. is kind of one of them, but usually you can get around it if you if you know where to look. So Paul's advice becomes not just practical for the Christian church, but practical for the individual because if you go around being a raging ear hole on the internet and yes I'm going to try to make that word happen it, it's going to come back to bite you much much more quickly and uh, probably painfully than it would have a generation ago mm-hmm. mm. what fascinates me about this little text is that Paul actually does use the word kairos the Greek term that retor- rhetorical theorists of the ancient world used to describe the occasion for a rhetorical act uh, and I mean, to think of one's whole life as rhetorical uh, is a fascinating idea in the first century. It is reality if you're online in the 21st century. Uh, and as David said, you know, the self that you prepare to show to other selves, and I can't quote proof rock like you can, David, uh, <laughs> uh, is always there. Uh, you know, one of the most useful distinctions that I've heard about internet discourse is the rhetorically savvy person is nude on the internet Mm. and the person without rhetorical savvy is naked Hmm. and the difference there is (laughs) the difference there is that the nude is always posing to be observed the naked person is caught off guard now who is naked (laughs) now now the naked person if i remember correctly um is the person who has no clothes on and is up to something (laughs) oh so Th- those you. websites aren't aren't accept- accessible from <laughs> from my yes, internet. That, thank you, Mister Mister Grizzard. Yes. Yes. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, I believe I'm distantly related to anyway, but that's neither oh. here nor there. I hate David. In a way, aren't so- we all distantly related to him? <laughs> well, who knows? I hate to cut this off, guys, but <laughs> Hitler. I, I realize that it's a short episode, but I do have a meeting I have to make. Uh, I do want to thank Michael Farmer, and I do want to congratulate David Grubbs. If you're not his Facebook friend, you might not have heard, but soon he shall be Papa Grubbs. Indeed. So congratulations, David. He'll have thank a little Grubbs. What now? He'll have a little Grubbs. Uh, yes. <laughs> little little Grublets. Mm. And see, I, I promised myself before we started airing that I wouldn't make jokes about insect larvae, but Michael yeah. went there. <laughs> you know, it took 59 uh, episodes. That's something. That is true. Yeah. That is true. Um, David, We're talking to David Grubbs online as the conversation continues. The probability of insect larvae jokes increases to one. <laughs> yes. David, what are we talking about next week? Um, I think we'll go ahead and start our much anticipated, at least at least by us, um, triptych on uh, Greek drama. And uh, next week we're going to talk about uh, Sophocles, uh, one of the well, better known in our day, uh, Greek tragedians for uh, uh, such things as Antigone. So, looking forward to that. So, you, you have you have three weeks of tragedy to look forward to. 
Excellent. It's going to be the dark night of your soul. Yeah. Every so, night. listeners, uh, you can find us online at www.christianhumanist.org. You can email us your comments at thechristianhumanist at gmail.com, or you can leave comments on the blog. There will soon, listeners, I promise, be a Christian Humanist forum to which you can post your thoughts on great books and other things. Uh, in the meantime, why don't you go on over to iTunes? That's where you probably found us. Leave us a review. Uh, give us a large number of stars as you do so. Uh, <laughs> and in the meantime, until next week when we get tragic, uh, in behalf of Michael Farmer and David Grubbs, this is Nathan Gilmore saying, let your sins be strong. Let your faith be stronger. Late for work, the boss is on me.